So listen, just forewarned is forearmed. This episode goes pretty deep into child abuse. So just be aware of that and be careful if you've had those experiences. So we're getting to the core, to the real dark heart of everything. And this is really the penultimate examination of history to peel back the layers and levels to understand what's going on, rather than listen to all of this nonsense propaganda that keeps being talked about, which is, oh, it was social conditions led to the revolution and economic conditions led to the revolution and the leaders of the revolution were just dedicated but misguided souls trying to do the right thing that just kind of got out of their grasp but kind of got away with them, sorcerer's apprentice style. And I mean, it's all errant nonsense. It's all errant nonsense. The argument, the case that I'll be laying out is that child abuse was absolutely rampant and endemic throughout French society. I mean, throughout all of its history. And I mean, as far as pedophilia goes, I mean, France and Germany both have massive, continued, present, current problems with pedophilia. The German parliament recently accepted a new petition for children's rights put forward by an association that's related to pedophilia. You have French intellectuals continually talking about desperate to lower the age of consent to obscene levels. It's a huge issue even now. And can we imagine what it was like in the 18th century? Can we even remotely imagine? I mean, it was, it was catastrophic. It was catastrophic. So the general argument goes like this. And of course, it wasn't just sexual abuse. It was all forms of psychological abuse. You're evil, you're born evil. Uh, physical abuse, beating the devils out. Physical restraints, swaddling, neglect, abandonment. You were producing a psychotic society. And that psychosis was barely kept in check via the king, the monarchy, the established institutions were like bulwarks against this raging sea of trauma that characterized French society at the time. Well, I don't want to see it. I don't want to just say at the time because this had been going on and in fact it had probably improved in the past previously. And what do you do with these traumatized schizos and psychos in your society? Well, you send them off to war. You kill them off. But the king was running out of money for wars, and people were running out of food for their bellies. And the externalization of trauma, which means to reinflict your trauma on other people in order to escape the weight of it yourself, the reinfliction of trauma, the externalization of trauma, the projection of trauma, could no longer be achieved. And when the projection of trauma can no longer be achieved, personalities collapse into outright murder and sadism. Now, there is a fairly constant factor in higher education throughout a lot of Western Europe, which is that if you're smart, if you have ability and, and IQ, then you are sent to these boarding schools. You're separated. At a young age, I was sent at the age of six to a boarding school. Why would you be separated from your parents? Why would you be sent to a boarding school? Well, to kill your empathy. And how do they kill your empathy? Well, physical discomfort, bad food, 
scant sleep, endless dissociating, memorization, rituals, and of course, as we know, in boarding schools, there's a fair amount of childhood sexual abuse. Of course, right? So with the restraint of the king gone, the rages that the king kept in check spilled over into the general population. And who was attacked? Well, obviously the aristocracy, for obvious reasons of predation and exploitation and being the unjust historical landlords. So how do the aristocracy get their land? Are they fantastic capitalist farmers? No. They're magic murder merchants, right? They're the very best at killing for the king. They're hitmen a lot of times, right? So how do the aristocracy get their land? By killing. The spoils of war, you can call it, or the fruits of crime. So as the indifferent hostile landlords, well, the aristocracy was attacked. Who else was attacked? The church. The church. The church was attacked because people were enraged at two levels. One, the verbal abuse of you're born evil and sinful and have to be beaten into even the, an approximation of subjugated virtue. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty horrifying. That's pretty appalling. And also because the church had failed to protect the children. Not only did the church fail to protect the children at the time in France in the 18th century, but it also actively participated in the most horrendous kinds of soul-splintering verbal abuse, existential verbal abuse. You're evil by definition. Uh, the universe is temptation that you'll always fail, and you have to be beaten to become even remotely good. I mean, that's not just you're stupid, you're bad, you're dumb. That's as life is hell and you are one of its primary devils. That's existential, right? And the wider the terms of abuse, the more impossible it is to escape it, right? Which is why abuse, say, based on race is so horrendous and so heinous because you can't escape your race, right? And so if your parents say, you know, you're a dumbass, you're a stupid, you're an F-up or whatever, right? Then you can escape, your parents say you can escape that and get better companions. But if as a child, existence, reality, life, the universe, everything, your essence, your soul, is all defined as evil and corrupt and malevolent and destructive, there's no escape. There's no escape. And if you can never escape from jail, and you have nothing to lose, why not kill your jailers? I mean, we can all understand that ferocious temptation, can't we? So the church was attacked. Massive verbal abuse. And since you can't escape the prison of reality defined by some of the clergy at the time, well, you will be tempted to attack the clergy. And they did, of course, they did. And, of course, the schools were run often mostly by the clergy, and in the schools there were massive beatings. I mean, there are even stories about nuns reaching into the late 20th century about how aggressive they could be, how violent, how abusive. So you were lashing out at those who'd abused your parents, the aristocracy, and those who had, had abused you, the clergy. Now, who else was attacked? The middle class. And the middle class was attacked because they had escaped from child abuse. And there's two prongs of attack upon those who escape child abuse. There's two reasons or two motivations to attack them. The first is the 
parents want to attack those who are promoting better parenting. Like bad parents want to attack those who are promoting better parenting. Because if better parenting is promoted and accepted, then those bad parents of the past face the challenge of being rejected and abandoned, of being judged as morally wanting and then they have to uh, apologize, make restitution and so on, and they don't want to do that. Obviously, if they had that capacity, they would have done it before. And it becomes really difficult to accept someone's apology when you're walking out the door because you're disgusted at their actions. The apology is just then another manipulation in order to keep you in their orbit to continue to exploit you or abuse you or whatever, right? So it's tough, right? So parents, bad parents, abusive parents, attack increases in parenting standards, and so that would be part of it. And the other part, of course, is that feeling of being left behind. You guys got away, you escaped, you set up your own separate reality, you dumped out of this universe and created a, another universe and left us all behind. And left us all behind. I mean, if you can imagine the rage that you would feel if you were in a warm ocean and there was room on the rowboat, there was room on the ship, there was room even on the raft, and people were just frantically rowing away as shark fins gathered and circled around you. The rage you would feel at being left behind to be preyed upon by those who were escaping, who could absolutely have helped you. That's a chilling amount of rage that people feel towards that, which is one of the main reasons why, although I got away from abusive people, I'm very interested in circling back. I mean, for reasons of compassion and also for reasons of, you know, just sort of foundational self-preservation, right? If you don't go back, they'll come for you with guillotines, right? So, does this sound like a reasonable framework? I'm not saying this is substantially proven at the realm of physics. Of course not. But we look at these broad trends and we look at the effects, right? If we see someone with a broken arm, then something broke their arm, assuming they don't have some, I guess bone-rotting disease, in which case it was a bone-rotting disease that broke their arm. Now, we may not know exactly what broke their arm, but we know that something did. We know that something did. If we see a leaf at the bottom of a tree on the ground, do we say, well, you know, maybe there's a plant that just evolved that spontaneously mimics a leaf and it just broke at the bottom. No, we say the leaf fell from the tree. Now, we don't know exactly the path it took. We don't know probably exactly when it fell. But we look at the leaf at the bottom of the tree and we say, the leaf fell from the tree. And then nitpickers are going to say, well, that hasn't proved, that isn't proven 100%, right? But then we can say to those nitpickers, well, you could just be a fantasy in my mind. I might be dreaming. I, I can't prove that you're arguing with me 100%. So if you're going to pull this nitpicking stuff, I can erase you from the conversation too, right? So, so a couple of things we know about Robespierre. So he was educated at the Lycée Louis Les Grandes which, as far as I can tell, and I did a fair amount of research on this, uh, is a boarding school. It was a boarding school, certainly, at the time. It's been around forever and, like, more than half a, cent, half a millennia. So he was at boarding school. He was at boarding school, and he was fascinated by the classics. And he didn't just learn the classics. You know, like, we learn geometry or whatever. That doesn't mean that we become obsessed and repeatedly return to the deep well of geometry for the rest of our lives. He was kind of obsessed by the classics. And he would absolutely, deeply, and viscerally have known that in the ancient Greek and Roman civilizations, that child rape was the norm. And that 
the educator that he most admired, who he wanted to emulate, strongly and emphatically recommended and urged that 12-year-old boys be repeatedly raped by older men. Come on. This is not a flight of fancy. This is not a flight of fancy. This isn't reading tea leaves. This is cause and effect. Of course he was raped in boarding school. Why would you want to be at a boarding school teaching children about the value of man-boy sexual assault? Well, okay, come on, we can all do this. We don't have to, you don't have to spell it out for you. So, if we would like some more proof, let's look at this, right? So, childhood sexual abuse. Now, these are correlations and these symptoms, and again, this is just me spouting off as a total amateur. I'm no psychologist, no expert. What are associations, personality associations later on in life from childhood sexual abuse? Well, depression, guilt, self-attack, self-blame, shame, eating disorders, somatic concerns, which is in general a concern about health that is not deeply rooted in a physical problem, anxiety, repression, denial, sexual problems, relationship problems, dissociative patterns, when you feel sort of out of body and spaced out and you're not connected with your own flesh, right? Depression is the most common symptom of sexual abuse survivors, childhood sexual abuse survivors. And after years of negative self-thoughts, survivors often end up generally avoiding intimacy with others, feeling worthless because they believe they have nothing to offer. Now, when you read Robespierre's letters to women he was interested in, they're incredibly awkward, half autistic. I mean, he doesn't say, I'm a great guy, I'm a fun guy, I'm a good conversationalist, I'm, I love uh, romance, I want to have kids, and right? He says, well, you shouldn't be too vain about your looks. And here's a legal brief I wrote. I mean, that's just beyond bizarre, right? I, I mean, <laughs> French lovers be damned, right? Now, survivors of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, tend to display much more self-destructive behavioral patterns and suicidal ideation, fantasizing about death, fantasizing about suicide than those who haven't been abused. Other symptoms of childhood sexual abuse, body image problems, feeling ugly, feeling dirty, hatred or dissatisfaction with body or your appearance, eating disorders, obesity or extreme thinness, this body dysmorphia of a various amount of kind. Now, of course, obviously we know the survivors of sexual abuse often have significant difficulties establishing and maintaining interpersonal relationships. Difficulties with trust, a fear of being different or weird, fear of intimacy, fear of connection, and a, a grave difficulty establishing interpersonal boundaries, like healthy boundaries of what you will and won't do. And, of course, they get involved in abusive relationships quite often. Because their earliest relationships were horrifyingly and malevolently abusive. So it's like trying to unlearn a language that you grew up with. It's really, really hard to do. And, of course, if we look at the longer arc, not just of Maximilien Robespierre, but of the leaders of the revolution in general, they were all involved in abusive relationships and died from them, right? Were, were killed by the abusive relationships they had with each other, with the guillotine, with the political system, with the laws. 
A study out in 1996 examined the relationship between someone's ability to adjust and navigate an intimate relationship, depression, and level of severity of childhood abuse. As the severity of abuse increased, then the scores that measured the ability to adjust and navigate intimate relationships decreased. You can't connect with people. And have you not met uh, people like this? And again, it's not a one-to-one relationship. There can be different all, all, differences all over the place. We're just looking at general trends. Have you not met those people who trying to connect with them feels like pushing two powerful opposing magnets together? Like you just, you just, you can't quite get the eye contact. They're often going off on tangents. They just can't connect with people. Well, of course, a lot of that has to do with this, this kind of stuff. And of course, betrayal, right? Those who claim to love you betray you. Those who claim to love you murder you or try to murder your soul in a sense, right? And of course, we can see Robespierre's turning on his friends who he loved. He, he bounced his godson on his knee and sent wonderful messages of marriage on the marriages of his wife and showed up and kissed everyone and hugged everyone. This is just a kind of grooming for murder, right? He, he draws you into his circle and then he gleefully signs your execution order. Right. So how would somebody know to ape love in order to destroy someone because that person had been groomed? Where an older, we assume an older man had, of course it was an older man, there weren't women teaching at these places. So an older man would have professed his affection for Robespierre and then raped him repeatedly. And so Robespierre expresses affection for people and then kills them. You understand, I'm not looking at clouds and seeing dragons here. I mean, these are clear patterns. Clear patterns. What about sexual dysfunction, sexual difficulties? Well, he, in his 30s, Robespierre died probably a virgin. He had endless women throwing themselves at him, yet he did not have affairs, he did not have sex. Why not? He was so dedicated to the revolution. I can't believe the people, the nonsense the people say, the nonsense that you have to read, the the, the treacly, self-serving, sentimental garbage that you have to plow through just to get to any basic facts about someone. All right, so the long-term effects of sexual abuse, like this is depression, dissociative disorders, and so on, they affect the sexual functioning of child abuse survivors, sexual abuse survivors. In 2002, there was a list of the top 10 sexual symptoms that often result from experiences of sexual abuse. Here we go. Avoiding, fearing, or lacking interest in sex. Huh. Sound like Robespierre? He was worshipped by women. He attacked his friend for having sex with his wife. He made the most ridiculous and awkward approaches to women that were inevitably rejected. He never changed his behavior or took advice from anybody more experienced. And when one of his revolutionary companions made fun of him and said, you'll do better in public life if you have a wife, Robespierre screamed at him, I will never get married. All right. So, avoiding, fearing, or lacking interest in sex. Yep, approaching sex as an obligation. Well, when somebody says that you should get married to have more credibility in public life, he screamed, right? Experiencing negative feelings such as anger, disgust, or guilt with touch. Robespierre was famous for being incredibly prudish and accepting no jokes about uh, sex or anything like that. And, you know, sex can be funny. And, I mean, you got to walk that delicate balance, right? It's, you don't want to take it too seriously, but you also don't want to mock it. And so he was very prudish and very hostile to, you know, the natural kind of jokes that people make, particularly men, about sexual matters. 
experiencing negative feelings such as anger, disgust, or guilt with touch. That seems to be the case as well. Having difficulty becoming aroused or feeling sensation. Have no idea, of course. Feeling emotionally distant or not present during sexual activity. We don't know because he didn't really have sex. Uh, Experiencing intrusive or disturbing sexual thoughts and images. No idea. Engaging in compulsive or inappropriate sexual behaviors. Well, avoidance of women when there are plentiful, like thousands of women would have been completely thrilled to be his wife or his girlfriend or his lover or his one night stand or whatever, right? I mean, he was a rock star. He was a rock star. Can you imagine David Lee Roth dying a virgin? Hard to imagine, right? Experiencing difficulty, right? Another symptom of childhood sexual abuse. Experiencing difficulty establishing or maintaining an intimate relationship. Huh. Well, yes, of course, this seems to be the case, right? Experiencing erectile ejaculatory or orgasmic difficulties. We don't know, of course, but if he was impotent, then this would explain why he would scream that he was never going to get married. This is why he would avoid sexual talk or jokes. It's why he would avoid women. It's because he, you know, couldn't couldn't perform if he couldn't perform. So again, we don't know. But yeah, male victims of childhood sexual abuse were more likely to experience eject, uh, erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, low sexual desire. It's fairly it's fairly fairly clear, right? So, if he was surrounded by people who wanted to sexually assault children when he was a child, his small size would have made that even worse because he would have retained childlike characteristics longer. I mean, he was a small. He was a small guy. I mean, even for the times, right? People were shorter back then. But he was like five foot three inches. Very, very thin. A pale face, slightly pockmarked, I assume, from some skin illness or skin ailment, which a lot of people had back in the day. His eyesight was terrible. He needed not just one pair of spectacles, but sometimes he would layer them, two pairs of spectacles at the same time. He also had an uncontrollable facial twitch that affected his eyes and also his mouth at times. A liberal pastor from Geneva, whose name was Etienne Dumont, recalled when Robespierre made his first breakout somewhat famous speech. He said, who's the speaker? And, and he went and met Robespierre. He actually met Robespierre twice. And Etienne said of Robespierre, quote, he had a sinister look. He, he didn't look you in the face. He had a constant and irritating twitch in his eyes. He told me that he was shy as a child, that he trembled every time he approached the podium and was hardly conscious of his surroundings. Il ne se sentait plus. When he began to speak, right? Shy as a child trembled every time he approached the podium, was hardly conscious of his surroundings when he began to speak. That's dissociative disorder. Out of body, not present, not visible. Now, do you remember we talked about childhood sexual abuse manifesting itself in food disturbances, some sort of disturbances with regards to food? Obviously, if oral sex is forced, that has a big effect on eating, chewing, and swallowing. So, a German who had sought out Details about Robespierre's life, published an account in May 1794, describing Robespierre's life. And he said, he rises very early. Then he does a few hours' work without taking anything but a glass of water. Meanwhile, he reads the Gazette or pamphlets of the day and takes his lunch, which consists of a little wine, bread, and a few pieces of fruit. After the meal, he has coffee served to him, stays home for an hour waiting for visits. Then normally he goes out. He comes home extraordinarily late. He often works till nearly midnight at the Committee of Public Safety. So he barely eats and he barely sleeps. 
Sleep disturbances are very common to victims of child abuse, partly for bad dreams, and also partly because your body doesn't really develop the natural rhythm of waking and sleeping because you have to be hypervigilant as a child. In particular, victims of sexual abuse as children have trouble in bed for obvious reasons, right, that they were often preyed on in bed at nighttime or in the boarding school where you probably slept in a dormitory. I know I did, right? So in boarding school, you probably slept at a dormitory, but you would be taken from there to some other place. And so you can't sleep because you're going to be preyed on, right? I mean, how, how well could you sleep knowing that there's a tiger in the house, right? You, you couldn't sleep, especially if the door was unlocked, if, especially if the door was open, right? If the door was open to your bedroom and you knew there was a tiger in the house, you wouldn't get any sleep at all. And that's the entire life. And then, of course, with the lack of sleep comes a whole bunch of both physical and psychological dysfunctions and problems and symptoms. So he often works till nearly midnight. And then, of course, he's got to get ready for bed and I assume bathe at some point and, and so on. Also, Robespierre had a, a fear and disgust of ailments and illnesses. And he was also extraordinarily paranoid at various times. Now, sometimes we can understand that. We'll get to that in a bit, but these are all, all symptoms. It's also, I know this is a bit of a, a leap in terms of time and occupation, but Freddie Mercury didn't like to go to bed and Freddie Mercury ate extraordinarily sparingly. And uh, Freddie Mercury had, was, was sent to boarding school halfway across the world from Zanzibar. He was sent to boarding school and the only thing he ever said about that was, yes, I had a few headmasters chasing me around the table. But it, he said, but I won't speak any more of that. And because he wouldn't speak any more of it, he became a drug addict and then self-destructive to the point of dying through sex. Too much love will kill you. All right. So Robespierre, constant health issues. And this is not a one-to-one -one correlation. People, of course, can have perfectly happy childhoods and have chronic health issues. But in general, overall, the people I've met or I've known who have chronic health issues all had terrible childhoods. It just seemed to do something to mess up with. Maybe it's the cortisol dumps. Maybe it's lack of sleep or something like that. But there's something about having a really bad childhood that predisposes people to chronic health issues. Certainly my mother, who had a terrible childhood, had chronic health issues, and some of it was somatic, but some of it was real, I think. So, 1793, May 1793, he constantly would get sick and collapse, Robespierre. Now you say, ah, oh, but he worked so hard, he worked so hard. Well, there's lots of people who work hard who don't get sick and collapse, and there's lots of people who get sick and collapse and have fainting spells who don't work very hard. And the other thing, too, is that if you have child significant severe childhood sexual abuse, then your intrusive thoughts are constantly plaguing you. You're, you're a questing beast. You know, like there's that internet meme about would you take $10 million if it meant a snail would hunt you forever? The snail could never be killed and never be stopped. Well, that's intrusive thoughts. If you have intrusive thoughts that are constantly making your life miserable, you almost certainly will develop some sort of death wish or murder wish, right? Because your life is unbearable. And so we say, ah, oh, well, you know, but he was... Uh, he was constantly getting sick and, and falling down and taken to bed because he was working so hard. It's like, no, no. He was working so hard to avoid the intrusive thoughts. The avoidance of his thoughts and his history produced ill health. It's my opinion, right? I'm no doctor. I'm no psychologist. Obviously, just my absolutely amateur opinion. So in May 1793, Robespierre was going through one of his exhaustion, debilitation, illness spells. 
He wrote to his friends Francois, Victor Aguin, in Montpellier. He admitted that, quote, I have been both indisposed and extremely busy. Rely on my loving attachment, but make some allowance for the state of weariness and despondency into which my painful work sometimes plunges me. Weariness and despondency, right? Depression, number one symptom of childhood sexual abuse. After the purge by the sans-culottes of the leading Girondins on 2nd June 1793, Robespierre confessed to the Jack- Jacobin Club on the 12th of June that, quote, I no longer have the strength to battle the aristocracy's intrigues. Exhausted by four years of difficult and fruitless work, I sense that my physical and moral resources are no longer at the level required by a great revolution, and I announcing that I'm going to resign. Exhausted, debilitated. There's no rest for the tormented. Like, did you understand that? Like, the rest that you and I take from time to time. I love putting on some quiet music and sitting on a couch and having a light doze from time to time. Just lovely. Really refreshing. The rest that you and I take for granted. You know, curling up with your wife on the couch and watching a cool documentary and chatting about it. I mean, just rest, replenishment, refreshment. People who are severely tormented, who've been really, really badly and horrendously abused, there's no peace. There's no peace. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a life without peace? So he's desperate to resign, but he can't. He can't. He can't rest. He tries to rest. He can't rest. He's drawn back to work because he can't stand himself. And of course, trying to diagnose people medically is really tough. Psychologically, I don't think it's quite so tough, but medically it's pretty tough, unless you maybe have DNA or something like that. So nobody knows for sure what illnesses Robespierre suffered from and why they kept getting worse over the course of his life. Robespierre's temporary secretary in 1790, whose name was Pierre Villiers, wrote that, quote, nearly every night Robespierre bathed his pillow in blood. And we don't know that. Robespierre also ate oranges obsessively so and, and never cleaned up after himself. And not cleaning up after yourself is another remark of a disordered childhood. So wherever Robespierre was sitting, you could tell by the orange rinds he'd left behind. One of the English biographers of Robespierre, Jean Lawrence, sorry, John, I'm getting too much of the French, John Lawrence Carr, said that Robespierre's taste for oranges was because of constipation which caused excessive irritability. Now, a fear of eating and anxiety about eating is often associated with digestive issues, and digestive issues are associated with childhood sexual abuse. And Adolf Hitler, of course, had terrible digestion, was mowing down on massive amounts of pills supposed to aid in his digestion, and it just makes people miserable. And what do they do with their misery? May the 7th, he just turned 36, the day before he returned to work on May the 7th. But a lot of people thought he looked way older, like he was physically, emotionally, intellectually exhausted. So years later, Paul Barris described a visit he made to see Robespierre around this time. And he said, quote, regarding Robespierre, the spectacles he usually wore were not on his face. And through the powder which covered a visage pale to the point of being white, we saw two troubled eyes that we'd never seen without the cover of glasses. These eyes studied us with a fixed look. I've never seen anything so impassive in the frozen marble of statues or on the faces of the dead. 
Now, even his eyesight is related to childhood abuse. Childhood abuse produces excess cortisol and stress, and stress and excess cortisol harm the vision. Right When the body is stressed, the pupils, as you know, they dilate to let in more light, and so you can see threats better. The rise in cortisol and adrenaline levels can place additional pressure on the eyes, and mental stress can lead to symptoms of vision loss. So... Yeah, it's really, really, really tough on, on eyesight to be perpetually stressed. And of course, as he was, perpetually stressed. Now, he came into his public life already with terrible eyesight. Again, could be congenital, who knows, but highly related to stress as well. Cortisol disrupts blood flow from the eye to the brain, which can potentially cause vision problems. The fight-or-flight mechanism harms the eyes in, in perpetuity and so on. So, yeah, it's really, really tough. And then, of course, Robespierre would get his hate mail. And then on the 23rd and 24th of May, attempts were made to kill Robespierre. And these assassination attempts made him absolutely paranoid to the point of obsession. In the words of a close associate of Robespierre, he could only talk of assassination, of assassination, always of assassination. He was frightened that his own shadow would assassinate him now. I'm not going to say that that's not a scary thing. I'm also not going to compare myself to Robespierre, but of course I've received death threats and physical attacks and so on. And you, I mean, you have to just find a way to, to roll through it, right? But And again, I have some sympathy for this because I also was not sexually abused as a little child, so I would have better ability to, to handle this kind of stuff. So despair, depression, anxiety, all effects of childhood sexual abuse. Robespierre said at the end of May 1794, he said, I only cling to this transitory life through love of the homeland and the thirst for justice. I have lived long enough. I have lived long enough. Now, he would periodically withdraw from public life, but he would then obsessively turn to working on writing and organizing his thoughts and ideas and arguments and so on, so he didn't rest he just withdrew from public life. A former classmate from the aforementioned boarding school, Louis Legrand, warned him from Amiens early in July that, quote, your efforts for the public good, of which you are the best friend and for which your enemies see in you only the zealous persecutor of their vices, make us fear for your life. And you have become, so it said, inaccessible at this time of personal danger. Of course, other letters were threatening. One claimed that, quote, you are becoming a dictator. Is there anyone in history more tyrannical than you? Won't we deliver our homeland from such a monster? Another letter described Robespierre as, quote, a tiger soaked in the purest blood of France, your country's executioner. His tobacco seller, again, addictions to nicotine, often the result of child abuse, Mademoiselle Carvin, his tobacco seller, he said, quote, We'll never get out of this mess. I'm worried sick. I'm going crazy. Worried sick, Burel. I'm going crazy. Jean a la tête perdue. And he referred again to his exhaustion and absence. He said, quote, For the last six weeks, at least, my so-called dictatorship has ceased to exist, and I have exercised no sort of influence on the government. Has the country been any happier? <laughs> Fake sounds of, I don't know, just popped in my head, Chandler Bing. Could this country be any happier? Now, his speech notes are extant, and Robespierre erased 
a confession of despair from his speech. What he scratched out was, quote, but for my conscience, I should be the unhappiest man alive. I should be the unhappiest man alive. Life is a curse. Now, if life is a curse and breathing is torment, murder can, seen, can be seen as a cure. Death, suicide, can be seen as a cure. It's twisted. It's immoral, of course, to project your own misery onto others and, quote, end their misery. But the fact that he was keen on murdering his friends and created a system where his death was almost certain means that he hated living. Why did he hate living? Tormented, exhausted, constantly ill, depressed, facial tics. It's a monstrous existence. And people just look at these, quote, great men of history. Ah, but he was so dedicated to his cause. No, he wasn't. His cause was murder and suicide. The revolution was the excuse. The cause is murder and suicide. The revolution is the means to the end. The revolution is the means to the end. As an intellectual, he preferred to kill with words. He preferred to, prov he preferred to provoke others. As an intellectual, of course, he preferred to kill with words. To provoke less intelligent people into doing the dirty work for him. Until, of course, inevitably, he lived by the words of swords, he died by the words of swords. It's always struck me that words and swords is one S away, and the S stands for sophistry. All right, so let's talk about Marat. Jean-Paul Marat. So he was born in Boudry, which was then a Prussian principality, on May 24th, 1743. He was one of nine children, lots of children back then. His father was a well-educated Frenchman, originally a Huguenot, which meant that he was tough, to, tough for him to get jobs because of his religious affiliation. The child grew into a man who was described as, and I quote, a horribly ugly little man, almost a dwarf. Marat's lack of hygiene is mentioned by just about everyone who met him who, got, who had the unfortunate experience of being within six feet of the guy. His character has been described as a man, quote, consumed with hatred and envy. And he was rejected academically and occupationally a lot. Now, you know, been there. <laughs> been there. Now, as I mentioned earlier, he was a radical revolutionary, Jean-Paul Marat, died famously in a bathtub, and endless paintings have been made about this. He was soaking in his bath when his assassin, Charlotte Corday, plunged a knife into his chest in 1793. Why was he in a bath? Well, he was constantly in bath. He would spend entire days in the bath because of a mysterious condition that left his skin unbelievably blistered and itchy and in the bath was his only relief and that's where he was killed. Now, Marat said, oh, I have the skin condition because I spent time hiding from my political enemies. I slept in cellars in damp, dirty clothes. And, I mean, there's been endless, honestly endless speculation. There's a real rabbit hole of skin illnesses or skin ailments. Doctors have said Syphilis, scrofula, scabies, leprosy, diabetic, candidiasis, atopic eczema, seborrheic dermatitis, dermatitis, herpetiformis, bullus, pemphigoid, and histiocytic proliferative disorder. Boy, there's some mouthfuls of syllables. He was only middle-aged when his skin problems began, and he also had headaches, crippling insomnia, his personality 
the changes he had massive thirst he had perineal ulcers and scrotal ulcers and leg pains and vasculitis and uh, just awful also it was reported that Marit had and i quote piercing yellow gray eyes infected with bile and blood so that's that's pretty terrible so yeah just those miserable horrible people and the physical misery again often comes from rampant child abuse and in particular sexual abuse if you hate your life you're going to hate others if you hate your life it's impossible to love anyone if you hate your life you can't be loved if you hate your life you can't have a bond the people who genuinely hate themselves are sometimes among the most murderous people let's take a very silly example robert smith the i think he started as the bassist for the cure never really wanted to become a singer but after they went through five singers who he said was terrible, even though he said, I hate, I hate my own voice, I'll become the singer. I hate my own voice, but I hate everyone else's voice too, so that's okay. And, you know, seems to be a fairly disturbed individual. He said that he set up recording cameras with him and his wife and watched the back, and he said, we just say the most insane stuff to each other. It's complete nonsense. None of it makes any sense. And he's an atheist, of course. He's never had children because he said, I resent my own birth. I resent being born myself. Why would I then inflict that? I'm paraphrasing here, but why would I inflict that by having a kid, right? Life is an illness, so to speak. And he spreads that nihilism in my view. Life is an illness. And his nihilism, his band, is called the cure. Anyway, we could kind of do this forever and ever, amen, but I just wanted to sort of make Make this case. Make this case. The people who parent better threaten the interests of the child abusers and the child abusers rage against them. This manifesting with political power, right? You combine child abuse plus plus political power, you get tyranny. Which is why the countries and the cultures that reduced government power had better childhoods, better parenting. If you can't reason with anyone because of trauma, unprocessed trauma, and the idea of being able to process childhood sexual abuse at a time where it wasn't even acknowledged as a thing that existed, really, and there was no self-knowledge, really, as far as modern analytical or psychological techniques went, it was practically impossible for him to fix it, in my opinion. Obviously, I don't know, but in my opinion. Sorry, I don't mean to reply with these obvious things, but I just wanted to remind you, though I think I make a strong case. Well, we can't know for certain, but we can know... To proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, while I was doing this research, just sort of by the by, when I was doing this research, I remembered a friend of mine when I was in my early teens, mid-teens, a friend of mine. And he never dated. He never married. And once, and he was into the most disturbing and dark music like really disturbing. He actually played me once a tape that gave me the shivers, which was a band recreating the sounds of hell. And it was just awful. Like literally gave me goosebumps. I like had the urge, like turn it off. This kind of music's going to open a portal. <laughs> right. And I think he was into a band called King Kurt, which I, going off very vague memory here from many decades ago, but I think they threw live animal remains around, you know, he was into the you know, psychedelic furs and <sighs> love will tear us apart guys. And all of that. Joy Division. And we were going to a concert once, 
And he showed me his thumb, and he had pushed a nail through his thumb, and he showed it to me, asked me what I thought. I mean, I was like a kid, right? I mean, what, what I, I was obviously disturbed, but I didn't really know what to say about it. Of course, in hindsight, this was a cry for help. And the fact that he did it to me meant that he recognized, I suppose, my capacity for empathy. But of course, I just asked, why would you do that? And he said, to feel something. That's dissociation. Why do you need hyperstimuli to feel something? You ever have that where your leg falls asleep, you stand up, and it's like you've got this blunt hoof with no feeling at the end of it? Or, as my daughter pointed out the other day, it doesn't matter how hard you pinch the skin on your elbow, it won't hurt. It probably will at some point, don't try it, but you just pinch it sort of gently or medium and it doesn't hurt. Or you get that numb face from dental surgery. Imagine if that was your whole body, your whole soul could feel nothing. Or again, to jump genres, Carrie Bradshaw, the Sarah Jessica Parker character in Sex and the City, who is a complete stimulus junkie, the character, I don't know about the woman. And she said in one of the episodes of Sex and the City, I barely feel like I'm alive. I barely feel like I'm alive. And there's a great song, again, to jump genre, it's a great song by Supertramp. I had a very vivid dream many years ago about the childhood me playing this on piano. Great song by Supertramp. It says, Jimmy Cream was keen, his brain was always winning. I can't keep tabs on mine, it's really quite a joke. I see him down the road, I asked if he'd be willing to lend me 15 p.m. dying for a smoke. Addiction, right? Can't keep tabs on my own mind. Scattered. Confused. And then there's a chorus. Quite chilling. Will he take a sailboat ride? Well, he's very likely to. Will he feel good inside? Well, he ain't very likely to. Oh, will he tell you he's alive? Yeah. He's always trying to. Yeah, but nothing. No, no, nothing does he say. Will he take a sailboat ride? Yeah, he's going to make money. He's going to be out there taking a sailboat ride, but he'll never feel good inside. He's always trying to tell you that he's alive. He's always striving to create and promulgate and give the appearance of life. And when I see people who are, you know, the woo girls and the manic people and the in-your-face party people and the drunk people who just want to have a blast and want to have fun, to me, they seem like half-rotted corpses with electricity jumping through their desiccated muscles. Dead cat bounce. Lightning striking a grave. So many people die before their time, or are killed early, and remain dull, tempting and murderous their whole life. So, have we got there? Let's finish it off. Let's finish it off. The revolutionaries the mob. And the mob has to mirror what the revolutionaries are saying. When you are a rhetorician, when you are an orator, what you are doing is summoning prior demons and giving them permission. You are summoning prior demons and giving them permission. So, of course, the king would provoke by stealing, and the clergy would provoke by verbal abuse, but then the king would say, if you steal, I'll kill you. And the clergy would say, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. But then what happens is you get the id, right? The seething animal, traumatized beast, restrained by the superego, the commandments, the rules, the punishments. But then when the atheists come along, 
they decapitate the superego. And we can see this happening in society at the moment, right? It's not a good moral philosophical solution to traumatize people into temptations of immorality and then threaten them with imprisonment or death if they act on those impulses. That just puts people into a state of continued lust for evil and fear of punishment, which renders them inert in terms of improving society. You're just fighting yourself all the time. All the time. So, this is... I'm not a Freudian, please understand, but this idea that there are seething traumatized impulses among people brutalized as children that have to be restrained through threats of punishment as adults. What happens when those threats of punishment are removed without the trauma being addressed, right? I, of course, would love a free society, a voluntary society, but you have to fix childhood first. Otherwise, you release all the demons kept in abeyance, kept enslaved, kept enchained by the bladed angelic beasts of punishment. You provoke children to rage and you punish them for being angry. This turns them into solipsistic, self-eating, self-managing, inert pawns for the rulers. So, the temptation to loose all the beasts from the heart. That's what the revolutionaries come along and do. And they say, loose all restraint. The king is just a man. The sky is just the sky. There is no hell. There is no heaven. And the king is just a man. And that takes all of the blood-engorged magic out of the superego lowers all barriers, and the beasts rampage. Releasing restraint without first fixing childhood guarantees mass murder, genocide, tyranny, slaughter. What does Locke say? Don't beat kids. Teach them. Instruct them with delight. What does Rousseau say? The natural animal is perfect. Loose all restraints. Don't be square. Don't be, what do they say? Don't be uptight. Don't be a square. Don't be a prude. Just relax. Let it flow. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Now, that's fine if you have a good childhood, if you have a happy childhood, a rational childhood, because do what thou wilt will be happy, moral, rational, and reasonable. So, fine. Yes, absolutely. But if you take the muzzle of a multi-year tortured and abused animal, people are going to get bitten. You raise the dog well, he doesn't need a muzzle. Traumatized and brutalized pit bull is a dangerous animal. You know, take a well-brought-up Labrador off the leash, it's bringing a trot by your side. You take a wolf or a tiger off the leash, so, this murderousness is to remove the restraints prior to fixing the childhoods and to say to the demons, there shall be no consequences, is to turn the world into hell itself. Let's talk about the sociopathy of the French Revolution. Of course, they're malevolent, brutal, both the sophists and 
those whose demons they uncork. And there's a word. Again, I just use this in an amateur fashion, of course. I'm no psychologist. Sociopath. So let's look at the defining characteristics of a sociopath. See how much does it line up with the behavior of the French revolutionaries. Diagnostically, sociopathy is associated with antisocial personality disorder, or ASPD. The characteristics of ASPD are failure to conform to social norms. This involves not adhering to societal norms, especially in terms of lawful behaviors. This is evident when one continually commits acts that can lead to arrest. Obviously, they fail to conform to social norms. It's okay. Neither do I, in many ways. I mean, actually, no, I conform to social norms that were norms when I was a kid. Uh, get married, have kids, obey the law, and speak your mind. You have free speech, right? So I'm obeying the social norms before they became weird and abusive, right? Deceitfulness. This trait is characterized by repeated lying, the use of aliases, or tricking others either for personal gain or pleasure. Yeah, deceitfulness. The whole damn revolution was based on deceitfulness. My God, above. It was all based upon deceitfulness. Liberty, equality, fraternity, brotherhood, peace, republic, voting, blah. No, it was all just mass murder. It was just grooming. It was grooming. The whole revolution was just grooming to murder. <sighs> Impulsivity. This refers to acting without thinking ahead or without consideration for consequences. Well, of course. You set up murder tribunals. Of course they're going to murder you. <laughs> I, I think about this with regards to some of the revolutionaries sort of in the current world. The first thing that's going to happen if their revolution is achieved is they'll be up against the wall. You just don't think about the consequences. Irritability and aggressiveness. People showing this trait often get involved in physical confrontations or assaults. Well, again, if you're a beast of language, right? I mean, it's satanic, right? Well, who is Lucifer? Lucifer, Satan, is the father of violence? Nope. Father of abuse? Nope. He's the father of lies. He lies. Satan can't achieve any direct evil in the world. All he can do is coax others to do it for him. It's efficient evil. It's cowardly evil, right? So yes, irritability and aggressiveness, without a doubt. Reckless disregard for safety. Such individuals do not care about their own safety or the safety of others. Well, that's 100%, right? Consistent irresponsibility. This can be identified by a continuous inability to maintain consistent work behavior or meet financial obligations. And of course, the work collapse, work collapse was pretty common among a lot of the senior revolutionaries. And of course, they didn't pay debts. They ran into debts and so on, right? Lack of remorse. This is evident when an individual remains indifferent or tries to rationalize their actions after causing harm, mistreatment, or stealing from another person. Now, I mean, how about murdering other people and so on? And I was really struck where he says, where... Robespierre says, but for my conscience, I should be the unhappiest man alive. Of course, it's his conscience that's making him unhappy at this point. He thinks, well, my conscience is the only thing that makes me happy, when, of course, his conscience is one of the major things, or really the only thing fundamentally that's making him miserable. So, yes, they absolutely, yeah, they, they lied. Rumors spread all over the countryside in 1789. Nobles are hiring brigands to terrorize the peasants. A foreign army, army is going to invade to crush the revolution. Marie Antoinette is having an affair with her best friend. And anyway, just, it even got worse from there, right? So, yeah, deceitfulness for sure. Let's talk about psychopathy. Psychopathy generally divided into two types, primary and secondary. Primary psychopathy, which is often considered to be rooted in biology, leads to reduced anxiety and an absence of emotions like empathy. Now, secondary 
psychopathy results from a bad childhood, like adverse environmental factors. And this leads to heightened negative emotions, increased anxiety, and impulsiveness. So primary psychopaths don't really experience emotions in the way that we would understand it. You know, like if you show video of someone's eye getting gouged out, normal people would recoil in horror. Psychopaths, like the primary psychopaths, it doesn't change their blood pressure, their breathing doesn't change, and heart rate doesn't change or anything like that. So relative to the primary psychopaths, the secondary psychopaths have somewhat of a relatively comprehensible way of experiencing emotions. And, you know, what's the most famous movie cliche of the past sort of half century, maybe 40 years? The most famous movie cliche is a guy in sunglasses coolly walking away from an explosion behind him. Doesn't care about it, doesn't notice it, doesn't turn around, is completely indifferent, doesn't smile, doesn't frown, right? That's programming you to admire psychopathy. Just so you understand that, right? It's programming you to admire psychopathy. Cold-blooded killers who feel no guilt and coolly kill whoever, right? I mean, you can see so many James Bond, Jack Reacher, there's so many of, of these people all over Jason Bourne. Like, people who just kill without remorse, that is training you to admire psychopathy and to then experience emotions as weakness, right? Attachment, emotions, empathy, this is all weakness. This gets in the way of the cold-blooded killing that is elevated and celebrated, right? I mean, there's another example, of course, a famous example from Robert Duvall's character in Apocalypse Now. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory, right? There's all these bombs going off, and he's completely indifferent to the destruction and violence around him. He's just squatting and, and chatting, right? Total psychopath, right? He doesn't even experience it, right? A 2019 review found that increased adverse childhood experiences were linked to antisocial personality disorder. That's the clinical term for sociopath. Physical abuse was related to symptoms of antisocial personality disorder, while sexual abuse was connected to a lifetime diagnosis of ASPD. Now, there's just data, there's just facts, and remember, I'm no expert. None of this is diagnostic. None of this is predictive. I think there are ways out of it, of course, right? I mean, I have a great and happy life. I had a terrible childhood. There are ways out of it. There are ways to solve it. But in the absence of this, right, philosophy is the insulin to the diabetes of abuse, right? We can solve it. Individuals who experienced childhood sexual abuse were two to four times more likely to exhibit antisocial personality disorder between the ages of 18 to 21 and 21 to 25 than those who hadn't undergone such abuse. Now, I think those numbers are worse as a whole. Because individuals who admitted to experiencing childhood sexual abuse, right, they don't include those who committed sexual abuse against children. And, of course, you can't find those people who say it never happened to me, even though it did, right? I, I think almost nobody would say it happened when it didn't happen, but there are many people with a lot of motives to say it didn't happen when it did happen. If you were a child, and I won't say you, sorry, that's the wrong wrong approach, if Bob, when he was a kid, was sexually abused by an older, say, male, then Bob, when he got into his mid to late teens, may have sexually abused a younger child, in which case he's probably going to deny the whole thing as a whole. So I think those numbers are much worse, but, you know, I can't prove it, right? Numerous studies have shown that criminal offenders tend to have a higher rate of negative childhood experiences compared to the average population. The accumulation of these negative experiences as children can lead to more severe, violent, and consistent patterns of criminal behavior. Right, which is similar to that which is observed in offenders with ASPD. 
individuals who underwent consistent or extreme physical maltreatment, right, beatings and, and so on, exhibited a two to seven-fold increase in the likelihood of, of having antisocial personality disorder compared to those who weren't subject to such abuse. Now, just to be clear, right, the cause and effect, right, I can hear the argument in my head, right, I don't believe it much, really, but I can hear the argument in my head, which it says, no, 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 this whole stuff is genetic, and, and so if you're going to beat your kid, you have this genetic thing, and, and therefore your kid grows up with this antisocial personality disorder, but it's not the beatings that cause it, it's the genetics that cause both. I don't believe that, but, you know, I just want to put it out there. Uh, certainly the idea of genetic evil is a contradiction in terms, since evil is a choice, and I don't believe that genetics drive behavior. They may drive temptation, but they don't drive behavior. In a multivariate analysis, sexual abuse was a predictor of antisocial personality disorder, while physical abuse wasn't a significant factor in the comprehensively adjusted model. And this is why I've said forever, right, which is that physical abuse is not the worst. The worst is sexual abuse, in my humble opinion. The worst is sexual abuse for children. Second worst is neglect. Third worst is verbal abuse. And fourth worst is physical abuse. Physical abuse is obviously wrong. It heals usually, right? And it's just physical pain. Physical pain generally doesn't leave lasting trauma, but the other three do. So one study that I reviewed explored the relationship between three negative childhood events, exposure to or experience of violent crime, sexual maltreatment, and physical maltreatment. So in the study of individuals addicted to substances like alcohol, cocaine, or opioids, the researchers discovered that such childhood experiences elevated the likelihood of developing antisocial personality disorder with a 1.47-fold increase in risk. Research from the Collaborative Longitudinal Personality Disorder Study investigated the impact of various forms of childhood adversity, such as emotional, verbal, and physical abuse, abuse by caregivers or others, emotional and physical neglect, inconsistent upbringing, dismissal of feelings, and failure to protect on the onset of personality disorders. The results indicated that only verbal abuse and abuse by caregivers was li linked to a heightened risk of developing antisocial personality disorder. However, for borderline personality disorder, seven types of adverse childhood experiences amplified its likelihood. In research examining socioeconomic, family, and school factors, another study discovered that neglect, specifically when a father shows a lack of interest in his child or when a parent is disengaged from the child's education, was linked to a higher likelihood of developing antisocial personality disorder. Children who consistently display high aggression levels are at a significantly increased risk of developing ASPD when they become adults. This indicates that ASPD might be the end result of persistent conduct issues and related psychological disorders throughout one's life. Conduct disorder, or CD, is diagnosed in childhood or adolescence, and it's characterized by persistent patterns of aggressive, defiant, and antisocial behavior that violates the rights of others and age-appropriate societal norms. Those with conduct disorder showed, it's truly staggering, a 1,110% increased risk for an ASPD diagnosis. I mean, these are obviously overlapping circles to some degree, but it's still pretty, pretty predictive. Now, of course, I've talked about the bomb in the brain and adverse childhood experiences forever and ever. Amen. So from the adverse childhood experiences research, we know that ACEs 
particularly physical abuse, leads to greater aggression. So here's a list of contributing factors to conduct disorder, right? This persistent patterns of aggressive, defiant, and antisocial behavior. Abuse, rejection, or neglect by parents. Diagnosis of other mental health conditions. If your biological parents have conditions such as substance abuse, depression, bipolar, or schizophrenia, inadequate nutrition, residing in a low-income situation or neighborhood, issues with maternal mental health, insufficient or absent parental involvement, unreliable, excessively strict, or ineffective discipline methods, witnessing violence, associating with delinquent peers, enduring physical, sexual, or emotional harm, and absence of sufficient supervision by adults. I mean, it was one thing to be a latchkey kid in the 70s, as I was. It's quite another thing to be a latchkey kid in the age of the internet, where all sorts of unholy stuff can come flowing through the pipes into your children's hippocampus. So, think of the childhoods in France in the 18th century. My gosh. A study examining 70 victims of child abuse, not a huge sample, just to be fair, right, found 50% of the sample met the criteria for conduct disorder. Among those who met the criteria, 65% were physically abused, 62% were sexually abused, 27% of the neglected or abandoned showed signs of conduct disorder behaviors. Distinct differences observed based on the type of abuse and manifestation of conduct disorder symptoms, there were these distinct differences, Physically abused individuals scored high on all conduct disorder scale subscales. The physically abused group showed more aggression than other abuse types. Yeah, I mean, this makes sense, right? Like if you're physically beaten, you're more likely to be violent towards others, but if you're neglected and so on, right? Fewer than 20% or less than 20% of neglected or abandoned children exhibited aggressive behaviors. Yeah, you tend to be withdrawn, inward, dissociated, shy, introverted, and so on, right? In the physically abused group, there were high hostility and rule violations detected. In the sexually abused group, they scored low for hostility, but 62% scored high for rule violations. Right, So we're talking about acted out hostility, hostility that breaks societal norms. These are the revolutionaries. Because rule violations are physically, generally physically attacking other children harming them, stealing from them, denying them their rights, violating their rights. Did the revolutionaries steal themselves? Nope. Did they physically attack other people themselves? Nope, or very rarely. So they didn't violate the rights of others directly, but they violated the rules of the society and really of morality as a whole continually. Sexually abused group. This is why I'm saying that the revolutionaries, in my view, were victims of childhood sexual abuse, And there's not one piece of data that contradicts this hypothesis. And there are dozens of pieces of data that confirm this hypothesis. Oh, it's circumstantial. Yeah, it's circumstantial. So what? So what? Circumstantial counts, especially when direct evidence is not possible. Like it's one thing to say, let's say each one of these 20 symptoms has only a 30% chance right? Only a 30% chance of being true. Okay. One symptom, two psych. So you understand, right? If there's one symptom, it's only 30% indicative of childhood sexual abuse. Second symptom. Okay. That's confirmed. So now it's 30% times 30%, which takes you down to around 10%. And it just keeps going down. And once you get to 10 and 20, the odds of the diagnosis not being 
true or virtually zero, right? It's almost certainly confirmed. Do, do you follow? I mean, I'm sure you do. I just you know, normally I'd have some math and all of this, right? Let's say it's 50%. Someone has a symptom. Well, there's only a 50% chance, a differential diagnosis, right? Somebody has a symptom. Well, there's only a 50% chance that it's this illness, okay? Well, then they have another symptom, which is 50%. Okay, so that's two. So what do we got? 75% chance of things. And you keep going up and up until it's close to 100%, right? Now, of course, you can do tests and all of that in the current world, but that's the way that you do these kinds of things, right? So in the sexually abused group, we would expect low direct violence, shyness, and we see a lot of that kind of stuff, low direct violence, but no respect for rules. Well, what do we see? Low direct violence and no respect for rules. All right, so returning to the study of the 70 victims of child abuse, Females displayed more aggression than males. Females displayed more aggression than males. Look, I could do a whole hour on that. I'm not going to, sanity's sake, but I could do a whole hour on this. You understand that by turning the revolutionaries into rock stars, the women amplified the violence, right? The women praise the sophists. The sophists release the demons in the mob, and thus the women are getting the men to enact their violence. Like, you know how women do this, right? Not all women, but women will do this. They can't beat up a guy, but they can go to their boyfriend and say, that guy just grabbed my ass and called me a whore. And then their boyfriend goes and beats the guy up, or tries to, right? So they can't beat guys up. So this is twice removed, right? So they praise the revolutionaries, the revolutionaries goad up the mob, and then the women can enact their violence. And of course, if you remember, in the storming of the Bastille, in the storing, storming of the palace, where Marie Antoinette was, the women were brutal. Brutal. So the fact that the women worshipped and praised the revolutionaries, I mean, it was like close to Tom Jones' panty-throwing concert situations, right? There was like this bizarre cleavage mosh pit for these deformed psychos. So, yeah, females displayed more aggression than males as the result of child abuse, but they usually don't display it quite as directly. They'll do sort of reputational damage. They'll go to other people into fighting you and so on, right? So we're going to just real quickly go over the childhoods of the revolution influences a couple of final thoughts we're getting there baby thank you for your patience i hope that you found this valuable i consider this my life's work as a whole so i hope that it's a value and of course if it is a value freedomain.com slash donate just took a lot of time and effort to put together i hope that it's helpful to you okay so let's talk about the french revolution influences we got danton his parents were jacques danton a lawyer and mary camus what happened when he was a child well as a baby he was neglected he was also attacked by a bull and run over by pigs. He later suffered from smallpox, resulting in facial disfigurement. His education started at the César school, later entered the seminary in Troyes at 13. Right? I assume that this is boarding schools or boarding areas, in which case he would have been subjected to the sexual abuse from older males, almost certainly. Marat. The first of four siblings, as I mentioned before, family had modest circumstances, the father couldn't get a steady job because he kept changing religions. He left home at 16 to pursue an education in France. And, of course, he had this terrible skin disease and perpetual discomfort and lived in the bathtub. Let's talk about Desmoulins. Desmoulins? 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 He's <laughs> the eldest of five children. Thanks to a friend's assistance, Camille Desmoulins, at the age of 14, was granted a scholarship to enroll at the Collège Louis-le-Grand in Paris. 
So this is where he became a close friend of Maximilian Robespierre, where almost certainly the children would have been raped by older men because they just absolutely praised the classical model of man-boy sexual assault. So that's just the way that it was. So Demilab eventually became a lawyer, but he couldn't function very well because he had a pretty crippling speech impediment. Robespierre, I think we've done all of this. Saint-Just, he was born in a Paris commune in central France, the oldest offspring of Louis-Jean de Saint-Just de Richebourg, a former cavalry officer, and Marie-Anne Robineau, the heiress of a prosperous notary. He also had two junior sisters, and once more I apologize for butchering the French language, despite the fact that I have a silent X at the end of my name. When he was 11, his father died, and his mother sent him, oh, where did he go at the age of 13? He went to a boarding school. Do you see? Do you see? Do you see? I'm not pulling things out of my armpit here. See this pattern. At the age of 13, he was sent to college or to boarding school. And he was known as a troublemaker there. Of course, you know, getting raped continually probably would make you a troublemaker. So... After college, Saint-Just began to court a notary's daughter. The two may have had plans to marry, but her father married her off to another wealthy family. When Saint-Just found out, he was enraged. He was heartbroken. He left for Paris and stole a good portion of his mother's silver. Yes. I'll steal from my own mother, but don't worry. I will protect the property of anonymous French peasants. Yep, absolutely, totally, uncertainty, right? So what was the cause of the French Revolution? Let's wrap it up. Well, in the decades and centuries and millennia leading up to the French Revolution, the masses grew up in extreme neglect, abandonment, and privation. They were abused, kept poor, and blamed for their own station in life, and all the things they could not help, their genes, their poor luck, the parents they were born to. As children, they were called wicked and evil from the beginning because of original sin, and they were constantly terrorized with an eternity in hell. They were bound, trapped, wrapped up in filthy, lice-ridden, cloth cages, bandages, isolated, beaten, ignored, starved, raped, and subjected to the elements in a way we can scarcely imagine. The inevitable bad outcomes of childhood trauma and, you know, just the random scatterings of intelligence was all blamed on their sinfulness and laziness. The monarchy, the clergy, the nobility, they were all the abuser classes. The clergy beat children in the schools and colleges with the birch. They all lived fat off the taxes, the theft off the peasantry. And the monarchy legitimized the whole thing. Church and state were the same. The king granted the clergy a monopoly on religion in return for the clergy sanctifying the king's brutal rule through appeals to divine power. To rebel against the king is to rebel against God himself. The works of Rousseau were obviously very popular. Now, Rousseau argued against original sin, but replaced it with all your instincts are good, all your instincts are perfect, your natural state is wonderful, it is only through contact with society that you become corrupted. And of course, he was a vile creature himself, arch-manipulator, And he was popular with a lot of people in the nobility, uh, the monarchy, the clergy, and even some of the bourgeois and the middle class. Uh, Why was he he so popular? What are we corrupted by if we are corrupted? Doesn't mean we stay corrupted, but what are we corrupted by? 
we are corrupted by brutality. We are corrupted by violence. We are corrupted by exploitation and beatings and neglect and abuse, verbal, physical, sexual. That harms us deeply. Like, you can get better, but it's not like you were never broken. The arm can heal the fracture can still be seen in the x-rays. Like that line from the U2 song, the sweetest thing, you can sew it up. If your heart breaks, you can sew it up, but you still see the tear. And you can become stronger. I mean, absolutely, you can become stronger. But you can never be someone who wasn't abused. That can never happen. That fantasy is very destructive. So, as the first faint glimmerings of Lord above, let's treat our children better. Let's listen to Jesus who says, what you do to the least among you, you do also to me. And whoever harms the children, it is better for a millstone to be flung, to be hung around his neck and he's thrown into the deep water when Jesus said, I have come to protect the children. Well, 15 years after, the first man to say, let's protect the children was nailed to a cross for his advocacy that morality should be universal. It shouldn't be confined to parents, but it should also include children. When the first protector of children had been tortured and murdered for his kindness, 1,500 years later, people began to say, hey, wait a minute, hang on. Maybe maybe we shouldn't torture, mutilate, rape, and abuse the children. <sighs> well, hopefully I don't get nailed to a cross, and hopefully it doesn't take 1,500 years again. But they began to think this. Now, the clergy, the nobility, the king, they needed an answer. As the first faint glimmerings of Treat the Children Better began to finally, finally, in the final 1% of the first 150,000 years of human history, finally people began to think maybe we should treat the children better. Maybe children aren't objects to be beaten and tortured and raped and abused and exploited at will. Maybe, just maybe. Well, that dawn began to throw some pretty long shadows, right? You don't see shadows at nighttime. No moon, heavy clouds, no shadows. Sun comes up, you begin to see some long freaking shadows, man. And as the sun came up, people saw some long freaking shadows. You know what they saw? They saw themselves in the mirror. They saw the grotesque, demonic masks of their own child-torturing, soulless, miserable fucking existences. That's what they saw. They saw the monster in the mirror as the light came up. And in France, the idea that you might be a bad person for torturing your children, people grabbed onto any excuse to avoid their own conscience as Robespierre would rather have his own head hacked off than face his own conscience. What do people say? Well, Locke was making the argument, and others, of course, were making the argument that we treat children better so that they become good, so that we don't corrupt them. And what did the French say? Why did they grab on to Rousseau so desperately, so vehemently, so aggressively? And why did it turn out so badly? Why? Because what did Rousseau said? Oh, you know, children are corrupted by cobblestone streets and uh, cities and a, a, a non-natural life. So children are, are corrupted by culture, civilization, uh, plumbing, uh, two-story houses. Uh, put, put them in caves, they'll be fine. 
have them grow up totally in nature, no restraint, no coaching, they'll be totally fine. Ah, you see? It's not child abuse. It's cities. Yeah, it's cities. That's, that's what's doing it. It's the cities. Yeah, just, just get them out in the country, they'll be fine. Yeah, right. Like all the children in the country were just fine. God. So rather than look in the mirror and say, maybe we should start a, stop abusing our children, which is what a lot of the parents in England and America and the colonies did. They said, oh, I know, what corrupts the children is anything that's unnatural. Well, okay, the clergy is kind of unnatural. Uh, the king's unnatural. The nobility is unnatural. So we'll just get rid of all of that stuff and, and uncork all of our passions and, and we'll be fine. We'll be cured. We'll be better. It's not child abuse that's made us terrible. It's not child abuse that turns people evil. It's repression of all of your natural impulses. Just uncork all of your natural impulses. Go wild. Go nuts. And you'll, you'll be fine. Totally fine. Now, you understand. I mean, this is fighting fire with fire. This is how trauma replicates. Trauma replicates when it says the solution to trauma is more trauma. You cure trauma with more trauma. It's a way for the devil to expand his reach over the population because the French people were more traumatized even after the revolution than before. The revolution spread trauma by saying that it is only moral rules that cause trauma. It is only repression. It is only managing the behavior. It is only controlling your impulses that causes trauma. The natural, noble, elemental savage is perfect and pure. And we see, of course, all of this sort of stuff when you look at indigenous populations of various places. Oh, they were all noble, savage, and this all Rousseau writ large, right? And it's all just a dodge. Child abuse causes virtually all the ills in society. And anything that takes you away from that knowledge is just replicating and expanding the abuse that causes more of the evil, which is what, exactly what we see in this situation. <sighs> Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Who are the least of these brothers and sisters? Who has the least choice? Who has the least power? Children. Who had all the power in society? The monarchy, the clergy, the nobility, the media, newspapers, reporters. Did they prioritize children? Did they pick their religious texts and prioritize children, as Jesus said? Nope. Nope. They did not circle back and acknowledge the true origin of evil. If you want to cure the evils of society and you're not talking about child abuse, you're colluding with the abusers. Foundationally. Fundamentally, the data is clear. I mean, good Lord, we're like three to four hundred years into trying to figure this out. And still so many people are so willfully blind. I can only assume it's because they have a bad conscience. Why would you want to talk about anything other than the origin story of mankind when it came to curing social ills? Why would you not look at the beginning of things? It's like saying, we are 300 miles off course on our sea voyage. Why? Well, you can only look back over the past five minutes. You can't go back to the origin. You can't go back to where we started. There's no prevention, only cure. And that cure is generally murderous. Why would you not want to look at the beginning of things in order to fix ailments? People have lung cancer, but you can't ever ask if they smoked. Why wouldn't you look at the beginning things? And then you can't even ask why they smoked. 
right? Because they were missing dopamine because of traumatized childhood and the nicotine replaced some of that dopamine so that they could feel normal. Hurt people, hurt people. Why are they hurt? And why are they hurting others? Not everyone does. What's the difference? Differential diagnosis. If you're not angry at the right people, you'll just be angry at the wrong people. If you're not angry at the abusers, you'll simply be angry at their victims. If you're abused, you're going to be angry. And you either direct that anger at the proper object, which doesn't mean any violence, doesn't mean any, any, any acting out, nothing like that, but just in your mind. You either direct your anger at the right object, or you become an abuser. Because the anger's going to come out no matter what. The anger's going to come out no matter what. If Robespierre had been angry at the older men or the older boys who raped him as a child, well, you would have had an American revolution, not a French revolution. But this couldn't be discussed. This couldn't be talked about. People mocked him for the effects of his abuse, and he was enraged. People laughed at him for the effects of his abuse, so he wanted to kill them. Why do the victims of such egregious abuse not care about social rules? Well, why should they? Why should they? Society didn't protect them. Why should they protect society? Society didn't care for them. Why should they care for society? Why should they care to protect the moralists who not only allowed them to be severely abused as children, but wouldn't even allow them to speak of it as adults and mocked them for the effects of their abuse. It's like some kid has his hand sawn off by an abuser, grows to adulthood, and everyone just laughs at him and calls him stumpy. And says, hey, you having trouble clapping? Give me two thumbs up. Oh, I forgot you can't. Like, you could do, like, you know, it's enraging, right? When you've been brutalized and abused and people mock and laugh at you for the effects. Yeah, you're going to get murderous. I mean... It's just a way of making people, it doesn't mean that they'll murder, but they'll be, they'll have murderous thoughts for sure. Now, last thing I wanted to say in this, and I've been wrestling with this for a while. Maybe I've got the answer. I think I do. Not certain. It's not a common state for me, but I'll, I want to be honest with you. So I say, well, there's no dominoes in history. It's all personal choice. But then why do so many people in one country choose one thing and in another country choose another? Why? Did so many more parents choose to be better to their children and there was not a violent revolution in England, at least in that century, and so many parents continued to be violent and abusive to their children and there was a violent revolution in France? Why in America were parents better and there was a better and more peaceful revolution than what happened in France? The American Revolution, they generally attacked soldiers. In the French Revolution... They generally attacked, well, just about everyone. <laughs> and of course, in the American Revolution, they didn't set up murder tribunals and send each other to their deaths. Why? Well, Steph, there have to be some larger forces if so many people choose one thing versus the other. And I would say that it still comes down to the choices of the individuals. It still comes down to the choices of the individuals. People talked about, I'm going to use the phrase peaceful parenting, because relative to what came before, this was peaceful parenting. The idea that you wouldn't beat children, except in very extreme cases, that you should instruct them with delight, as the motto went. 
the idea that you should not swaddle them, wrap them up in these lice-infested bandages and hang them on hooks, toss them aside like a piece of firewood, but that you should breastfeed your own children, you should give them eye contact the, and, and skin contact and take delight in their presence and enjoy their company and reason with them. So people, and who knows how many it was at the beginning, doesn't take many, doesn't take many people to change the world. I am constantly talking about this everywhere I go. I'm telling you, everywhere I go. People say to me, oh, your daughter's so delightful, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, well, we don't punish, we don't yell, we don't hit. She's homeschooled. And of course she's great. And people say during the day, oh, is your daughter not in school? No. God, are you kidding me? <laughs> Why would I put her in school? That's wretched. I'm just constantly putting out, this plant seeds. This plants seeds. Even you don't have a podcast or whatever, you can still talk about it anywhere and everywhere you go. Work it into conversation and spread it. And spread it. Like you never know if you're going to meet that one person who's just got this incredible ability to communicate, who's just going to spread the ideas far and wide. Like, you know, Darwin didn't defend his own thesis. There was this guy, I can't remember his name, called Darwin's Bulldog, who went out and argued for the Darwinian position. Darwin was too shy for that kind of stuff, but somebody else. So you don't know. You never know who you're going to communicate, what influence, what effect they're going to have. You don't know if the person you're chatting with is part of a large parenting group, could be in person, or maybe maybe they're an influential member of a 100,000 strong parenting group online. I put the ideas out. You don't know. So it probably came down to just inverted pyramids, small number of people who started the ideas. Ah, but why were people receptive? That we don't know. We don't know. But we do know that people in general are followers. People in general are followers. So when I meet people in my real life who have misinformation, I'll correct them. I'll correct them. Because every bit counts. Every bit helps. There weren't enough people who chose to talk about peaceful parenting in France in the 18th century. There just weren't enough people. Why weren't there enough people? Because they didn't choose to. There's no answer to that. They had that choice. They had that choice. They read Locke. They read Rousseau. They chose Rousseau. They chose the abuse of neglect over the abuse of violence. Neglect your children. They'll be fine. They're natural, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, no. Children need to be parented. <laughs> well, you don't just leave them to make up their own language, do you? Children need instruction. They need guidance. I mean, every mammal knows that except for bizarre laissez-faire leftists who think that children can raise themselves. That's well, just selfishness and it's just laziness. So they had the choice. They were exposed to the same materials and for whatever reason, and there's no answer to this, not, not enough people spoke about it. They chose not to speak about it for fear of rejection or for fear that they'd meet disapproval from people or they'd be kicked out of some social group or some buddy-buddy club or some business opportunity. It's like... Fuck that. Jeez. Jeez, you Lord above. The idea that you would trade the security and safety of children and thus of yourselves and your future world for the sake of some nods and smiles and a country club approval and like the idea that you would like, no, no, I, I don't want to get any frowns at the tennis club. So it's way better that we end up with the soil of France soaked knee-deep from end-to-end end in human blood. Way better. Way better. And these are the people who are supposed to think long-term and heaven and hell and eternity. So, that's what they do. 
why didn't people speak more about this? And we don't know. Doesn't matter. We don't know. We know that they didn't. But if local people had simply asked questions, if local local people had raised the issue, and everyone who doesn't is stealing their own fate, right? Everybody who doesn't talk about these things, and this includes you, honestly. It's not like we're not on a totally different planet now. Everyone who doesn't talk about these things, yeah, you're going to risk people getting mad at you. You're going to risk getting rejected. You're going to get spurned. You're going to get kicked out of various groups. So what? I mean, it's the right thing to do to talk about protecting children. And also, it's the only way to secure any kind of security or safety in the future. And we have a whole generation of children raised by soulless screens that does not develop empathy at all. And, you know, the enemies of reason and virtue are hard at work on the kids, especially in the schools, producing some people filled with some very dangerous delusions. And we have to counter that for the right thing to do verbally, right, peacefully. We, we have to counter that for it's the right thing to do. And, I mean, just a basic matter of self-preservation, isn't it? So why was there a French Revolution? Because people didn't talk about protecting children. Therefore, children continued to be abused and continued to be marked for the effects of that abuse, which turned the murderous. And once you've raised children in a brutal manner to be dangerous, you need to threaten them continually. They can never grow up. You need to threaten them with hell and beheadings and punishments and so on, perpetually. But the grave risk is that once the agency of punishments, the clergy and the nobility, are no longer believed. And once half-satanic seducers like Rousseau come along and say, the only possibility of virtue is the end of all restraint, well, it's like there's a giant dam holding back a wall of acidic blood, and they detonate the bottom, and everybody drowns. It's up to you, it's up to me. We talk about child abuse, we talk about the effects of child abuse, we talk about raising children peacefully, and we secure a free, benevolent, and peaceful world. If we refrain from that, if we avoid that, when the devils come, and they will, do we have anyone to blame but ourselves? Freedomain.com slash donate. Thank you.